Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Millie Williamson, and I teach Media Communications and Cultural Studies at Goldsmiths in London. Prof Millie, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. You've got a wonderful array of books behind you in bookcases piled high. There might even be some VHS cassettes in there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Just to date us both, although you're much younger than am I. And apart from answering for the reasons for your having VHS cassettes, for those who've never heard the expression VHS, it means video home system. Wondering what's going on for you right now, what you're thinking about, what's preoccupying you, troubling you, dynamizing you. Um, I suppose um, in a broad way, what is occupying my mind and troubling me has is what has always been occupying my mind and troubling me. It's just that there's always different instances of it. And that's growing and spreading inequality whether that be racial inequality or, you know, the continuation of imperial adventures or gender inequalities or class inequalities, we seem to be in a situation where, I mean, everyone knows that those inequalities have all expanded massively in this neoliberal era that we're in and and particularly have accelerated in the last 20 years. So, I mean, that's, 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 you know, always a worry. And, you know, I think we see, you know, big examples of that, of course, in relation to what's happening in Gaza, which nobody can uh, forget, and which is, you know, the the bleeding heart of the world, I think. Um, We can see it in, you know, the continued uh, oppression of uh, people of colour in terms of policing and housing and education and also women in terms of being, you know, uh, subject to sexual violence and, um, yeah, so I'm cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) If we were talking 20 years ago, would you have said the same things other other than Gaza, do you think? Um. Because it would have been true 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably would have done. There there might have been different examples. and and, But I think that, I mean, I think things have just, you know, things have deteriorated significantly in the last 20 years. Um, And, uh, you know, the divides between the haves and the have-nots, both in internal nation states and globally Mm. have, you know, really um, intensified. Um, I think that, you know, I think 30 years ago, I was probably more optimistic than I am now. Maybe that's because I was just younger, more foolish and didn't have, you know, the 20 years of of experiences in, you know, behind me, but I think that um, I, I think I mean, how, to, how to put this. I think that um, I think there's been a significant defeat um, for important liberation movements and social movements since 
the 1980s. Um, and that has had an impact on our capacity to resist on a national and global scale today. Um, so we live in this kind of weird world in which we're supposed to not, you know, that we're supposed to live in a time, you know, after empire. And yet we have imperial, you know, wars all around and settler colonialism is going strong. Um, you know, we're supposed to be in a world in which, you know, you you have to, you, you almost have to uh, proclaim if you're a woman or a person of colour that, of course, you can do it, you can make it, you you know, equality has, you know, the potential for you to, to reach your best you is out there and social media and celebrity culture all encourage that kind of stuff. And the, and the reality of inequality um, in terms of pay and life expectancy is is profound. So I'm probably less optimistic, but mm, take mm. a glimmer of hope in every movement for freedom, justice and democracy that I, I can see. And I've been on all of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations, bar one, um, and they are encouraging. They're really mixed. There are lots and lots of young people, lots of people of all ethnicities, ages, faiths. Um, they're friendly places of solidarity. So that's encouraging. But in the face of, you know, the unthinkable. I remember when Carter won the presidency of the US in 76 and the American war in Vietnam saw defeat of the imperialist fascists and I had a Whiggish teleological unfurling of hope in my mind and the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment in the US and the election of Reagan and his uh, pet poodle Thatcher were real shocks to me. I was very naive. I mean, I suppose those were the years that I was coming into adulthood. And, um, you know, I think I probably didn't have the vision. I kind of always thought that I would have loved to live in the 60s when it was all peace and love, but also there was a lot of radical politics. Um, but I sort of came into adulthood, you know, in the uh, mid 1980s, when mm. all of these processes were unfolding, but it seemed to me that there was resistance. It's just resistance that was defeated in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I still think that we're, you know, we're living with that and having to rebuild from those defeats is a time consuming um, but necessary activity. And Prof, in looking at your profile, in the surveillance way one does. Mm -hmm. I see that one of the things that you're in charge of teaching is promotional media. And I actually had the great privilege to record an interview with one of your colleagues in the promotional media area the other day. Which I listened to. It was oh, lovely. Did you? Okay. She was oh, Yeah, I did. Alison, yeah. yeah, I loved yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. She was she was terrific. She had a World War II, you know, bomber jacket on because it was <laughs> so cold in her home. Uh, I, I learned a lot from her, as I had from reading her work, and 
I learned, I've learned a lot from you. I've known you for years, so it's a bit different. Uh, but I've learned a lot from both knowing you and from reading your work. But I wanted to ask you about promotional media, because if we were to go back 20 years or 30 years, I don't think there'd be a thing to teach or to research called promotional media from left, right or centre. There'd be degrees in advertising, how to, but I don't think there'd be degrees of study in majors in promotional media. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what you guys are on about in that major and and how it turns you on. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, I kind of developed that degree and then handed it swiftly on to Alison. So it's actually <laughs> <Yeah>. her degree. <laughs> but, you know, when I was devising it, I was trying to make it in the, you know, in the Goldsmith way, which is that it is a critical investigation with kind of crad you know, creative practice involved in it. And I think that, I mean, the reason that I started thinking about it was because of my celebrity book, which, you know, I think, I think you might have even, something else about it. Anyways. Um, and it, and, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the things that happened when I was researching that book, because I started with the question, you know, where did celebrity come from and why does it grow? Mm. And one of the things that the research for that book made evident is that there are a number of different things that come together to to see when we see the expansion of um of celebrity um and and one of the main ones is having um you know business models for institutions and organizations that are primarily about promotion and that celebrity has long been used as a promotional tool and influences everything from you know clickbaits in new in online news to the way that films are you know not just promoted but how they're actually put together you know design is now absolutely interconnected with brands and brands are about bigger things than than simply what something looks like or what the logo means so I started thinking about how 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 important prom- promotional culture, specifically through celebrity culture, has been in shaping cultural industries, but but beyond that as well, creative industries, but beyond that as well, um, and how that's intensified. Um, with the rise of new technology, and one of the things that I discovered, of course, that the introduction of new technology is always a factor in the growth and spread of celebrity um, content, I think it would be called now. And of course, (laughs) social media is, I mean, social media has taken it to another level so that influencers, Mm -hmm. you know, in the past you had a celebrity or a star who was ostensibly good at acting or singing or what have you, um, and they would use their fame to, you know, to promote a film or a record or what have you, or endorse products from, you know, fashion or perfume. But social media influencers are the product and their their purpose is to sell themselves as a brand and brands, you know, in general. So it seems to me that there's been a massive, so rather than the technologies of freedom liberating us and, and opening up all of the wonderful yeah. possibilities that digital culture could mm-hmm. offer. Um, what we've had is an intensification 
um, and domination of promotional imperatives and values, primarily through celebrity culture. Now, we're going to move on to talk about more your, your more recent research in a moment, if we could. But Celebrity Capitalism and the Making of Fame, I think, is the name of the book. It's a fantastic book. It's eight years old, which I know means I know realize I realize means means it's completely irrelevant to everybody because, you know, couldn't possibly tell you anything in the same way that you never read Freud or Weber or de Beauvoir or Foucault because or Fanon because, you know, they're obviously out of date because they weren't on Instagram. But one of the challenges for understanding this, if we take it back to a sort of misogynistic tendency in the 70s in the US, I'm thinking of Christopher Lash, but other authors too, is that there's a feminine slash female aspect to this. The element of being invested in brands and their meaning, the gender dominance of influences, most of them are women, but they get paid much less than the very numerically few men, by contrast. So much of this is about fashion, look, makeup. If I wander around my classes that I've been teaching in the last five years in five countries, the boys are betting on football on their phones and the girls are looking at clothing and makeup. Now, this is partly because I'm a shit boring lecturer and why would you listen to the old white guy anyway? But that's what they're doing. Could you... Take us inside for a moment the relationship between gender and celebrity, because apart from sports, it seems to me in some ways it's quite an occupied female space. Or have I got that wrong? Well, it's interesting because this, just this year for the first time at Goldsmiths, I taught, I've taught a module called Theorising Celebrity that I wrote, and it did have as many male students as females. Ah. Um, but they do. But there is a gender difference in terms of the kind of celebrity that they feel confident talking about and dissecting. But I think that, I think that, you know, I think John Berger um, ha- pointed out something in his ways of seeing that, mm. that really nobody has managed to um, un- undo um, when he argued not just that men look at women, but that women watch themselves being looked at that that gaze is internalized. And today, not only is that gaze internalized, it's also presented to us as a form of empowerment and often empowerment through consumption. And I think that's the connection between gender and celebrity, that women are being told you you control your sexualized objectification. Let's call it subjectification because you can embody it and embrace it and love it but nobody can, nobody can, nobody talks about how do you step outside of that if you don't want to do that. That those are that's how you're successful. And every year, I ask my students when I'm whether I'm teaching promotional culture or theorizing celebrity. When I, I always teach a session on John Berger and ways of seeing, and I show them social media selfies from you know cele- female celebrities which look, you know, I mean, I actually compare them to Renaissance painting because the poses and everything. That's what Berger did. Yeah. That's what he did. That's what he did with photographs. And I thought, I'm yeah. going to try this with. Yeah, this beautiful, movie. beautiful. Um, and I 
I asked the woman, mm. the women in the class, is there is there anyone here who hasn't, is there anyone here who can truthfully say that they haven't internalized that to be looked at, that they haven't, yeah. that they are completely outside of this sense that we are expected to present ourselves in a particular way. So it is gendered. And the other thing that Berger writes in that really wonderful piece is that, you know, the, 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 the people who, you know, the people who, the, the, the Renaissance artists who painted these pictures of vanity and women looking at themselves in a mirror and condemning them for it were also you know, voyeuristically taking pleasure in it. So they were having it both ways and it was completely um, corrupt. And I think that's exactly the same way that certain types of commentators write about people like the Kardashians, that they take, that they bring them down and 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 say that they're awful, um, which, you know, let's leave to one side, whether or not they are awful, but they're <laughs> awful because they don't have any real talent. They're just bodies. Oh, but actually they're bodies that we really find very sexually attractive. So women have it, are stuck in a bind. You know, society is telling us to be bodies and then condemning us for it. And it's hardly surprising that, you know, the social media influencers who barely scrape a living, a lot of them barely scrape a living, um, are... The, the female ones and, and some of the male ones as well are relying on, um, you know, notions of the body and, and what the body should look like and how it should be sexy and how they should embrace all of that. I really appreciate that you're using John Berger's work, Prof, because I have this sense that he's more influential in the art world and amongst, in a sense, general intellectuals than he is in the academy nowadays. And yeah. there's a neglect of him. And people rightly will use Laura Mulvey's terrific essay from a few years later, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. But really, Berger got it first. And, and not only did he get it later. first, he, he did it better, I think. Well, he did it in ways people can understand. Also. Well, OK, that helps. But also, I think that there is, you know, I think what's wonderful about Berger's work is that there is that kind of, um, there is that, you know, the way that he draws on Benjamin, he's got that sense of contradiction. He has that sense that, you know, new technology, the photograph did provide new ways of seeing by destroying perspective, but actually old ways of seeing are smuggled into those new forms, not because of the technologies themselves, but because of the wider uh, conditions in which uh, those technologies are introduced. And I think that's absolutely applicable to uh, new technology or tech, as my daughter would call it, she works in tech. Don't call it new tech, mom, it makes you sound old, you know. But in social media and on, and online, and that online culture, I think that he's got, he, you know, he is so applicable to what's happening now, I think. Yeah, he, he was a truly remarkable figure. We are unlikely to see his kind again in yeah. terms of being so many things artist, novelist, critic, historian. And great performer, filmmaker, I mean, everything imaginable. He was incredible. And I, I think you've made a great point there. And I'm assuming we don't even need to get the answer that your female students give you as to whether there are those who have not internalized these bodily norms and criticisms, right? We know the answer. Yeah. What about the boys? Do they have anything to say about this in terms of having 
you know, a sculpted body with muscles that, that's ripped and strong and so on? Or are they are they just immune to these pressures? In no, I don't think they are. And also it's goldsmiths. So we get students who come to us because they're questioning, you know, gender norms and um, identity and all of that kind of stuff. So, so the boys are... You know, they're, they're very open to these kinds of discussions, actually, even though, you know, they're when, you know, I've just been reading a lot of the essays and the boys are writing about wrestling stars and the girls are writing about social media influencers, but not all of them. Um, and I think that, um, what was I going to say? I forgot what I was going to say. I was asking you about whether the boys are also, in a sense, under the spell, if I can use that expression, perhaps it rather fulsomely, of a body type that they're supposed to aspire to or to have? I think that they, I think that it's probably more folded into the idea of masculinity. So one of the things that we talk about is that, you know, one of the idea that I introduced to them via, you know, people like Rosalind Gill's work is that there are, and Angela McRobbie, that there are these kinds of, you know, we're living in a moment in particular, but it's a, it's a long moment in which, you know, in public culture, you have very hyper-masculinized identities and bodies and very feminized ones. And if you look at something which all of my students watch, male or female, like Love Island, you can see that you've got these big blokes with bulging muscles that they have, you know, they've had to take all kinds of steroids and work out forever to get Are you suggesting that I had to take steroids to get this possible? <laughs> Come I'm sure on. you did. I'm sure you did. <laughs> and then you've got these extremely slender, tiny little women. Um, and I think that the students understand that both of these are kinds of performances of femininity and masculinity that don't really, you know, don't really connect with what it's like to live in the world you know, as yeah. a as a fem- in a female body or a male body, that it's a much more complex picture than that. And, and I do think that they get that. And the title is on the can, Fantasy Island. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Prof, before we move on to your current research, could you explain, because about a quarter of our audience is based in Britain, what you meant a bit by the kind of student that's attracted to goldsmiths? I mean, I think, you know, that's a difficult question. I think that, you know, Goldsmith has a reputation for being, you know, for having radical pedagogy, for being critical. Um, And, you know, I think us, I think students do come to us who are particularly, you know, kind of politically motivated or, or, you know, want to have some kind of radical education. And I'm not saying that doesn't help happen elsewhere. I have no doubt that it does. But having worked elsewhere, it was something that I really noticed very much the, you know, the kind of character of the students at Goldsmiths. And it's not just that they have pink hair and 17, you know, it's so, it's much bigger than that. There's a kind of a questioning, you know, um, critical, you know, desire to kind of unpack things and, and, and see things differently and live differently. And I've really noticed that when I Mm-hmm. When I moved from, you know, a more corporate entity. Well, they're all corporate entities, so I don't know why I said that. But. So on to your current research. And 
it is also very of the moment. I mean, the celebrity material, if anything, has become more important since the book came out. Mm. But you're dealing in some of the work you're doing now, as I understand it, with issues that are also very long-standing, in fact, longer-standing than celebrity, but are very poignant and powerful right now. Could you tell us a wee bit about that? Yes. So um, the research that I'm doing at the moment is about looking at the kind of cultural politics and cultural meanings of, in particular, statues of empire. And so the, the research that I've been doing seems to indicate that at the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century, there was kind of a mass production of these sorts of statues. Um, they were primarily statues of people from not the moment that they were put up, but from the past. And they were often people who were obviously kings and queens, but naval figures, military figures, political leaders. Um, so there, so one of the things that I'm investigating is what was it about this moment at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that motivated this mass production of statues of empire, which have been the targets of um, racial justice campaigns across the world. And so I have been, I've been returning again to older pieces of work. So I returned to the work of Eric Hobsbawm and the invention of tradition. And in that book, he argues that at the end of the 19th century, there was the production of a whole load of rituals of national belonging, mm. such as flags and national anthems, et cetera, et cetera. And his, arguments, his argument was that these were produced at this time in order to consolidate not the old social relations that they pretended to draw on, but really the, the, the new social relations of, you know, capitalist modernity. And so I've tried to think about statues in that context, that statues are part of the invention of tradition. Um, but I've wanted to also think about like the, the work of people like CLR James and Cedric Robinson on the way that, um, you know, capitalist nations and empire are completely interconnected and, um, empire and all of the uh, tragedies that go along with empire were absolutely in, 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 uh, baked into the growth and development of capitalism. And that actually, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, this was the time of the height of European empires. And so these European empires were, in a mass way, producing uh, monuments of national greatness that depended upon a sense of national identity, which was also simultaneously about empire, about um, superiority, um, and about the acceptability of colonial violence, basically. So that's the research that I'm doing. And I've got a whole series of, it's in early stages yet, I've got a whole series of case studies, where I'm, I'm, I'm looking at statues that have had big campaigns 
Um, so I'm looking at Colston, for instance. And actually, if you look at the Colston statue, campaigners have been trying to get rid of that statue for almost 100 years. And the city council completely disregarded any concerns of the local population about it until the Colston Four were accused of pulling it down and were acquitted for doing so. But there's also Robert E. Lee in the United States has been an important one. Christopher Columbus has been an important one. Um, uh, Rhodes Must Fall was a huge campaign that reverberated around the globe. So I'm trying to think about not just the, you know, the, the broader histories, but, but I want to look at who put those statues up, mm-hmm. when, why, who paid for it, what was its purpose, to really think in detail about why these statues have become triggers for mm-hmm. racial justice. And it's different, actually, in this broad imperial landscape. It's different in different cases. I mean, if you look at the case of Robert E. Lee, all of those statues were put up decades after they lost the, uh, you know, the South was defeated in the American Civil War. And they put it up at the time, at the beginning of Jim Crow, as a way of having this all kind of alternative uh, national or subnational identification in the South, which was based overtly on racial superiority. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. In the US case, it was really a celebration of the defeat of Reconstruction. Yeah. And it's a lot of it is early 20th century and late 19th, as you say. I was there when the Lee statue issues uh, in the middle of New Orleans were, in a sense, temporarily resolved. And I wrote an article and took photos of the staging of a battle in which the fascists, almost none of whom were from Louisiana, let alone New Orleans, they were people who bust themselves in from other right-wing states, uh, arrived with machetes and other weapons and they didn't have the Confederate flag. They had the Confederate fighting flag, the black and oh. white people would roar into battle with versus you know, people with rainbow queer flags and no weapons. And two groups of cops, about 100 cops uh, that kept them separate, 50 white, 50 black, on different sides physically of this uh, remarkable place so yes it's really going on it's a really big deal it's huge in latin america it's huge in britain it's huge in belgium but i can't think of anywhere but it's bigger than the united states because these fascists and hyper masculinists had so much baggage erected so to speak on their behalf it is absolutely incredible there are still in new orleans where you recently told me off air your daughter's living, if I can share that fairly. There are still dozens of streets, about 40, named after these fascist, racist men. And one of the major high schools is named after one of them. And this is a high school that has been, since its inception, basically 100% black working class. Mm. I know people who went there and they had no idea after whom their school was named. But the right really knows after whom these things are named. And I think statues are very important, but street names, neighborhood names, high school names are really important. Robert E. Lee High School in Houston is only 
50 years old. It might have uh, 55 years old, I think, I don't know if it's been renamed, where ZZ Top went. So I, I urge you to look into the CVs of ZZ Top, Millie, as part of your investigation. Well, I definitely want to read that article. Where did you write it? Oh, well, it's a very celebrated piece, so it's no surprise that you already know it, but don't. No, I wrote something in a, a, a magazine that now doesn't uh, now doesn't want me, but did then briefly called The Conversation. Ah, OK. I should know about that because I do read The Conversation. I will, I will definitely. I read it too, but they, uh, they twice commissioned me to write pieces which their cowardly lawyers told them not to print. And since then, I'm, I'm, uh, these were pieces, as I say, that they commissioned. But since then, they don't love me anymore, Mealy. Damn. Damn. What you're doing is really, really super important. I try to keep up with the statue stuff, which I teach. But I'm way, I, I'm not at the level you are at all. But it's something I try to keep hold of as something pedagogic rather than something that I'm going to do more research on, as it were, if you can make that distinction. But I'm behind on school names, which I think are really important in the United mm. States, most mm. of all, but also street names and whatnot. Um, it's I interesting. Guess... Sorry, Sorry you... go ahead. No, it's interesting that, you know, in the U.S., there's a lot more research on statues. Um there's a, just a lot. I mean, it's a, it's kind of an established oh, field really? of inquiry, a lot less than here in, in Britain, where there's pockets of things happening, right. but really, you know, it's not really been pulled together in a way. Um, there's no, like, research centre at a big university or anything like that. But one of the things that I did, you know, when you're talking about names and stuff, is I've just run a very small but um, very... Um, in, in some ways enjoyable to do because the topic is so awful um a little public engagement activity called being human under the title what are statues for and i did it with my colleague um freddie osborne and the reason that we decided to work together is because i was telling him about my book and i was telling him about robert e lee and he's a young um man of color from you know, East London, you know, Southeast London near Goldsmiths. And I was telling him about the Robert E. Lee statues and the conversation that we've just had. And, oh. and he was said, oh, damn it, damn it, damn it. And I said, why, Freddie, what's wrong? And he said, you know, my favourite television programme when I was growing up was the Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> And their car is called the Robert E. Lee. And it yeah. was my favourite type of car. And it was painted with a confederate flag and i didn't have a clue he said that i was oppressing myself and the so, actors are on the far right of yeah. u.s politics yeah so it's interesting so so what, you know one of the things that we did is we did a little walking tour and we were kind of in in deptford um I did it and Freddie filmed it and I've never done anything like that before, but it was really interesting who came to that. So the idea of the walking tour is that we went to look at these monuments of empire and juxtapose them with what is actually Lewisham's very rich anti-racist history. And one of the, so we started at the anchor and, 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 you know, we ended up at the, statues of slavers on Deptford Town Hall, which is owned by Goldsmiths, by the way. Um, <laughs> and there have been campaigns to have them removed. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we did is we stopped at the blue, the tiny blue plaque that commemorates the 14 young people, most of them teenagers, who were killed in the Deptford fire 
in the in the early 1980s and everyone in the community knows that it was a you know it was a, it was a far right nf uh fire that was started deliberately and the police never investigated it this is nf which is national front which was yeah. enormously significant mostly young white male far right action group of people in many parts of britain in london but also in the midlands and the north in the late 70s and 80s very violent yeah. very nasty uh, now it is more sovereign and capital p political yeah. than populist one might yeah. say i mean they were definitely street fighters and they had a big following in in yeah. in lewisham yeah. um but one of the women who was on this tour who who's my age who was 16 in 1983 said to me you know as we were walking from the anchor to the blue plaque she said to me you know millie i um i should have been at that party I was invited to that party. I knew everybody who died at that party. And the only reason that I didn't go is because I used it as an excuse to go and see my new boyfriend who I wasn't allowed to see. And so I wasn't at that party. But she was saying this is an, this is very, you know, this is decades later and it is still an open wound for the black community in Deptford. Okay. Um, and it was, you know, that she then came to all of our other events. And, you know, we had this incredible group of people who made films and wrote poems, just local people from Lewisham and students. Yeah. And it was, you know, it made me realize that, you know, these, these, you know, there's thinking about, you know, the relationship between symbols and their importance and material inequality and actually kind of, you know, I learned a lot from those activities because these kinds of symbols are so important to people. They have a reach beyond. And, you know. and hugely in a place like Britain, which has nothing of interest to offer anybody ever, other than it, the commodification of its history and its attempt to govern itself through history. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking Churchill must be a big figure in some of these actions. Yeah. He's... <laughs> Well, he he isn't. He isn't. I mean, Terry Galley has just written a wonderful book on Churchill, yeah, which I'm in really... some way I, I want to be able to write about. Um, and and you know, he if anyone could make the case against him, it's Terry Galley. Um, but you know, there are. Um, it's funny the figures that have been. You know, that's another thing to think about. What have been the flashpoints and why? I mean, there have been some attempts to you know, to spray paint on Churchill, but they haven't had the same kind of impact as others like Colston and like uh, in the US, you know, the Confederate leaders yeah. um, and Cecil Rhodes. But, but you know, but, but it is happening in lots of little places. So some of the people who came to talk at the event were um, people who'd run the Jeffrey Must Fall campaign, which is now, you know, which was Sir Jeffrey, who had a statue in front of what was then the Jeffrey Museum, which is now the Museum of the Home. So there's lots of little um, local campaigns to to try for communities to have an impact on the public landscape that they, the urban landscape that they in, inhabit. But there's a, such a disconnect between that and what the Conservative government are doing, who have now introduced 
you know, policy that, that actually makes it a criminal offense to deface a military um, statue or, or in any way try to do anything to it. And also they have given uh, policy advice. The, the government has given policy advice to heritage institutions, um, which are, you know, pretty much make it impossible to have statues removed or any other kind of heritage monuments that people might be feel oppressed by. So there's this real disconnect between, you know, a a, a British culture which is full of different ethnicities and mm-hmm. backgrounds and, a, and an official culture which whoever it's populated by, you know, in the government or what have you, is very much insistent on that white imperial history as the centre of what is va- supposedly valuable. To be fair to the United States, even good old boys in the South, not Republicans, but good old boy Democrats, are getting rid of this nonsense. They really are. It's governors and mayors in Louisiana and Virginia, real good old boy places, that are saying this is absurd, it's racist, it's supremacist, we're not having it, right? I suppose that's one advantage of having a federal system rather than a viciously centralised national one. Just for some context, so Lewisham is a neighbourhood in the southeast of London. It is working class by and large. It has a lot of African-descended, Caribbean-descended residents, but also other minorities. And Goldsmiths is unusual in London universities in that it's not in an expensive part of town. I think it's fair to say. So, well, you know, house prices in London, you know, well, <laughs> everywhere is expensive. Okay, but it's con- not Chelsea. <laughs> by contrast with some other universities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yes, of course, I take your point. So, just to give people a little bit more context, that's incredibly powerful, wonderful work, I think. And I really appreciate the distinction you've drawn between what's happening in the US and what's happening in in Britain. I think also the Southern Poverty Law Center is really important in this in the US because they produce maps that are dynamic, that change every week, maybe every month, but regularly in terms of the amount of commemoration of these disgraceful episodes or (laughs) material past of the United States, how those are commemorated in the country and where they can be opposed. And there isn't really uh, a non-government organization like that in Britain that is dedicated to these questions in in the same way. Um, Anyway, to finish off, Prof, I had two more questions, if I may. Okay. And then I wanted to throw it open to you to add or subtract anything. Pardon me, anything from what we've already discussed. So the first question is, I'm knocking on your door. I say, Professor Williamson, I'm a huge fan. I want to be you. (laughs) How do I get, how do I get there? Come on, Prof. Um, Well, um, I, I mean, I don't, um, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone try to be me or anyone else, really. So I don't know how to answer that. I haven't been strategic in my academic career. Let's put it that way. 
I am an activist first and foremost. Um, and, um, you know, how, how that activist side and, you know, my work career side interact is, um, always evolving and, um, not always easy, um, particularly in the, neoliberal marketized university where, you know, senior managements, you know, say jump and they want the response to, to, to be, you have to organize, you know, you have to talk to the joint negotiating union committee before we jump. What they want you to say is how high. So um, I really don't know how to answer that question. I, I really, really don't. I think that really all we should be concerned with, as your T-shirt says, but I'll paraphrase it, is what are what are the sources of powerful domination in the world that we know are effing things up dramatically? Mm-hmm. And what are the possibilities for resistance in all of their myriad ways? And the thing that I've always been concerned with, which is probably why people would identify me as a dinosaur Marxist or an old-fashioned Marxist, is I'm concerned with where the resistance has power. Where do we have the capacity to actually make things change? You know, how does power operate? How is, what is collective power? Where, you know, what, what kind of relation, what kind of power do movements have? What kind of power do, do trade unions have? You know, when the, when the train drivers go on strike, there's power there because nobody can get anywhere. Um, so that's, I, that's what I would say to anybody who wants to be anybody of value in the world. Um, it's, you know, one has to have a role in um, attempting to, uh, you know, I know this sounds really like a hippie, make the world a better place, man. But what <laughs> I mean is fight for fight for economic, social and political justice and, and where however people want to do that and wherever they may be. And I am definitely not a role model. I love what you said. I'm going to show you, which people won't be able to hear and maybe won't, and it's not going to show up, but that's the Communist Manifesto is on my socks. <laughs> and all I can see is blue sky. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, this is the problem with a faux background, but believe me, it's there, okay? I'm making my point for any ants or very small dogs that can read English. Information is readily available. So in, in a way, Prof, you've answered my, my last question, but I'd like to pose it anyway, which is, Related, I think, to that, but slightly different, to ask you how you do your research. What are your, sorry to use the M word, methods? Oh, what a moment. Um, I mean, I suppose my, my, my main, you know, I always start with history. I, I started at university doing a history degree and then encountered Martin Barker and, and um, Anne Beezer teaching cultural studies. And I just jumped, basically. Um, so that's kind of my early trajectory. But but I, I guess you can take, you know, the girl out of the history degree, but you can't take the history out of the girl kind of thing. So I always start with history and and the and, and what the history can tell us about the moment that we're living in and the possibilities mm-hmm. for transformation. I, I, I also, you know, the really the the celebrity book was a political economy of um, systems of celebrity in, you know, in, in media systems and beyond. 
um, that tried to look, of course, you know, the other the other concept that I was trying to keep in mind is um, the notion of contradiction, because political economy is nothing unless you have a sense of the thing that you're looking at as being and capitalism is the thing that we're looking at as is being deeply contradictory in its in its bones, in its core. And those contradictions endlessly throw up the unexpected resistance possibilities for public prominence that nobody thought would ever happen and and then they get transformed into something else and and so contra so so history political economy and contradiction are i don't know if they're methods but they're my approaches and of course within that i'm always interested in racial gender um and other forms of uh justice and discrimination and how that interacts with capital, with um, power, and, um, you know, with the transformations wrought by different policy environments or, you know, new technologies or what have you. So I don't even know. Is that an answer? I'm not sure that is an answer. No, you've given two wonderful answers. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Millie, could you conclude things for us by doing the, the business of adding or subtracting anything? Something that we've covered but you'd like to say something more or something that we've missed? Well, I'm hoping that when you listen back on this, if I've said something completely idiotic, you'll just you'll just cut it anyway on my behalf. So, And I can't think of anything, but I might have done. It's possible. It's likely. Um, oh, what would I add? I don't know what to add. I, I would get mushy and talk about wonderful people in our field. Oh, Please do if you don't mind. <laughs> if you don't mind getting mushy. Do you have some tissues handy? Yeah, I do actually. I've got some right, right here, good. and the cat. Just use the cat to wipe myself. Oh, I mean, okay. you know, <laughs> I think. Um, <sighs> well, I mean, I have wonderful colleagues that I work with at Goldsmiths. It is a truly unique department, um, and I'm sure that everybody knows that um, Professor. Des Friedman and Dr. Golan Kiabani were wrongly suspended from their roles as the departmental managers um, for writing to students who weren't going to graduate to let them know that they weren't going to graduate when the students had been writing to them endlessly, worried about whether or not they were going to graduate. And the, and the university's policy was to say nothing. Um, the response from media and communication scholars was amazing, amazing. 80 letters from professors across the globe demanding that they be reinstated. A, um, I, it does make 